Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> All right, here we are for part two of Carol Lombard. Uh, we left off where she had just finished her first film opposite uh, Clark Gable, and her love of her life, Russ Colombo, had died. Tragically died. Very and tragically. Antique pistol accident. <laughs> Right, exactly. Oh, my God. And Carol's career is beginning to take off. She's uh, under contract at Paramount Pictures for the seven-year contract, as usual, and for actors. And one of the things that would happen is that studios would loan their stars out to other studios because, oh, I want that actor, or you want this actor, we'll, we'll trade them, and or, oh, I'm willing to pay you $150,000 to have so-and-so in my movie over here. And the actor would then be told to go over to this other studio and do the film, really not having any right to say no unless they want to be suspended from their contract. And the other thing is, is the actor never got paid any more money. So studios basically made profits on these farming out their various actors. So this is what happened to Carol. And usually it was considered, often considered to be a punishment because in Carol's... Um, case she was under contract to Paramount Studios which was one of the more top studios so that was considered like oh a good place you know a quality place Uh, and she was loaned out to Columbia Pictures now it was sort of like the Columbia was the boogeyman it's like Columbia is the shit the shit studio Uh not as bad as the Poverty Row ones not as low as that but if you're going to be a major studio it's the lowest major studio and it's like oh and you don't get treated well and it's terrible and it's crappy and um, so she gets loaned out to Columbia uh, to be punished because I think she refused to take one of the films she was told to do. And the head of Columbia Studios was Harry Cohn, which is one of the reasons it was considered so terrible. They're all vying, really vying for the nastiest man in Hollywood, all the studio heads. But I don't know. He may be the worst. I don't know. Hard to say. Who is just a really major, horrible person. Won't even go into it. So she gets sent over there, and this is where her... Her strategy worked so well because Harry Cohn, he was a sexual predator and he, he was just horrible. So she goes into his office, uh, it was, I guess it was for 1932, for A Brief Moment was the name of the film that she was supposed to do. And uh, Harry Cohn tried to put the moves on her and make her sleep with him, like trying to force her to succumb. And apparently the quote is, Look, Mr. Cohn, I've agreed to be in your shitty little picture, but fucking you is no part of the deal. Nice. And apparently Harry Cohn zipped up his pants. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And he says, that don't mean you can't call me Harry. <laughs> so he liked her. He liked that. Yeah. And she was able to pull it off. And so they got along actually quite well. And he, Good for her. Whenever she would go over there, she had her best pictures there. Well, and she wasn't treated like the orchid lady. So they weren't trying to make her, oh, this elegant lady, you know. And so she liked that. She liked that a lot. Cohn, um, his studio, which is really what put them on the map, did, it happened one night mm. in 1935. And so that's kind of really what moved them up because it happened one night, swept the Oscars, every major category. He wanted her to play the role opposite Clark Gable. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the role ended up going to Claudette Colbert, by the way. And now, what's interesting is Clark Gable was being punished. So he was sent to Columbia to do this picture. And then Claudette Colbert was being punished. And she was sent over to Columbia. Uh And nobody wanted to be doing this picture. And they (laughs) thought it was going to be a dog and terrible and a dud. 
And it's one of the best movies ever. It's yeah. Definitely five star. It was also probably the better for not having Carol Lombard be. I, I absolutely think so. I, I, she'd be too much. Too much of a much. Uh, but uh, basically, the only reason she didn't do it is she had a, a conflict, a filming conflict, because she was already going to do a film called Bolero, which is actually not a good film at all. Uh, although she does dance in it with George Raft. So I watched it for that. It was kind of interesting. Um, the dancing was cool. The dancing was very cool. And George Raft was a dancer, although he has become known in latter days as, for his roles as a, a gangster. As he got older and he couldn't dance anymore. But he was a hoofer, apparently, originally. I don't, I don't know. He, he can dance, but I don't know. And they tried to make him out to be the new Valentino after Valentino died. And I'm like, no way, you pudgy little guy. <laughs> he's kind of pudgy. I mean, I can see the lines of his face are kind of like Valentino's, but he's got none of the feral sexuality or any of that kind of stuff, you know. He's okay in certain, certain ways. Anyway. Enough on ragging to on George. <laughs> Listen to our Valentino podcast. Yeah, right. More yeah, of that. Even more of that, yeah. Uh, so essentially, um, she was filming this with him, and she really liked him a lot, and they had an affair. Hmm. So, yeah. And she said, in fact, in an interview at one point, who was Hollywood's greatest lover? And she says, George Raft. Or do you mean on the screen? <laughs> <laughs> and then he said about her, I truly loved Carol Lombard. She was the greatest girl that ever lived. Aww, yeah, sweet. Yeah, it's very sweet. They were together, and and she was doing this film with him. So, and she ended up doing two dance films with him. And the other one was called Rumba, which I have not seen, <laughs> but it sounds awful. So, okay. Just an aside. In Bolero, there is a very young Ray Milland. He was so young that they had to had him have a mustache to try to make him look a little older. <laughs> and Ray Milland is a. a very famous actor who was in Golden Earring, C.R. Marlene Dietrich episodes. And <laughs> Let's see if we can just call out every single, <laughs> yeah, one every single episode we ever did. Um, anyway, um, the film that she ended up doing at uh, her stint at Columbia was the one that made her. It pushed her over into the A-list and being the queen of screwball, even though... It, you know, there was still some ramping up in her career, but this is the one that was the turning point, and it's called 20th Century. And 20th Century is the train that a lot of this takes place on. And um, basically, she plays a poor actor. Uh, she plays a, uh, an actress who is molded and shaped by John Barrymore. So she finally does a film with John Barrymore. And uh, then she ends up going off on her own. She wants to be independent, and he's trying to keep her under his thumb. And basically, and so it's just a lot of screwball running around and people posturing and yelling. And the take is that she's brilliant in this. This is the screwball. Uh, John Barrymore and the director just brought it out of her. They helped her let loose. And, and basically, this is just Carol Lombard, except taking up several notches. She's just doing what she would do, except more. I just think it's terrible. It's so strident. I'm sorry. She's very screechy. Very yeah, screechy. she and John Barrymore are both very screechy. Yeah. yeah, But John Barrymore carries it off a little better, and I guess I just I find him maybe ten percent funnier. I think he just got a slightly better role. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe that's yeah. what it is. It could be. There's our opinion on that one. <laughs> yeah, it's not on our recommended list. But you will totally see it recommended. So that, up to you to decide what you think about that one. But it was huge. It was absolutely huge, and it was directed by Howard Hawks. So that's the guy who did His Girl Friday, and he loved the tall, thin, wiseacre, tomboyish woman. That was the Hawks woman. 
you know, his kind of ideal woman was like Lauren Bacall, young Lauren Bacall, or maybe a Jean Arthur, uh, and of course, Carol Lombard. Um, he had a wife named Slim, called her Slim, <laughs> and she was, that's exactly what she looked like. They didn't stay married very long, so I guess he wasn't a very good husband. So now she's starting to ramp up, and she's starting to get more comedies, and she's in a movie called Hands Across the Table, which, did you see Hands Across the Table? Yeah, that's, this is one where she's a manicurist, ergo the titular Hands Across the Table. Yeah. And uh, she starts doing manicures for, like, a rich guy, and then there's another guy that's introduced, and it's kind of between the two of them. So this is Fred McMurray. If any of you ever saw My Three Sons or Double Indemnity, that's Fred McMurray. And he started out, he was actually a saxophone player originally and a musician, and he's not an actor, but there's just something about him that they when they slot him in the right roles, which they did, he's really good. But he he was absolutely insecure and hated it and he couldn't open up emotionally and he couldn't let go and Barbara Stanwyck worked with him and she could she just couldn't loosen him up it was more it wasn't really a comedy it was a Preston Sturges written romance which um I liked a lot uh, but he couldn't he had to say I love you and she found him crying in the back because oh he couldn't God. say he couldn't say it he was incapable of saying it I don't think you said that in our Barbara Stanwyck episode see our Barbara Stanwyck <laughs> right where we talk about that film Carol Lombard decides she's going to take it in hand because this is a comedy and so one day the director of Hands Across the Table comes in and he finds Carol Lombard him lying on, he finds Fred McMurray lying on the ground with Carol Lombard sitting on top of him, pounding his chest, saying, Now, Uncle Fred, you be funny or I'll pluck your eyebrows out. <laughs> and I don't know how well it worked, but I, I enjoyed him in the film. Because I honestly think Fred McMurray just actually did pretty well in the romantic part of the, of the film. You know, yeah. the, the yearning part. Okay. But he doesn't have to say I love you, so it was okay, I guess. <laughs> I, I just got to tell you this aside. He was in a sitcom called My Three Sons when I was a kid. So this is like the 60s. And it was, he's a widower, and he's got three sons or four sons. De- depends on when you watch this show. <laughs> he had a varying number of sons. He would come in with his sack lunch every day. And then as soon as he did, he had, I guess it was in his contract, they did all the scenes first, and then he left. And the kids said, well, then what they had to do their scenes, and it wasn't like the cutting back and forth. They would just do Fred McMurray scenes. So when they had to do their reaction scenes and everything, there was a guy holding a mop. And his head <laughs> and they would be looking at the mop, doing their lines. <laughs> Fred McMurray would just leave. <laughs> so uh, about this time, okay, so she's gotten over Ross Colombo. She's divorced. She's fancy free. So she's just having a great time. She's a big party giver. She loves to give parties. Now, at the same time, she her mom is right there. And they live together like she lives with her mom after she gets divorced or what, after Columbo dies. You know, like whenever things are really hard. But her mother does not want them to live together because she says, I don't want it to seem like... I'm hanging on you, I'm using you, that I'm your stage mother. I shouldn't be living with you. You should have your own life in your own house. And if you go back to our Marlena Dietrich episodes, there is a, a part where Marlena talks about going to this party at an amusement park where they all like get dressed up and they go down slides and they ride on rides and all this stuff. That was Carol Lombard's party. 
Oh, nice. And Marlena did not like it. She, why would anybody want to do this? <laughs> Marlena, of course she didn't. Marlena was not a like a like a, a, a whimsical woman. a whimsical <laughs> kind of woman, a free flowing, let's play kind of woman <clears throat> at all. Yeah. So anyway, Marlena went to that, and she you can hear her comments about that on our other. I don't even remember that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she did a hospital party. And where she met her guests in a nurse's uniform and issued everybody hospital gowns. She set them in iron beds like they have in hospitals. And they had with charts at the foot of the bed and they were fed on bedpans. <laughs> and their cocktails were served in glass tubes, like test tubes, by interns. <laughs> she had a Roman banquet, you could imagine that. She did a barnyard. That rules. Yeah. This is all rules. I want to go to these parties. I know. They're amazing. And the thing is, is she was very truly egalitarian. This was not just stars. Anybody that she liked, if it was the lighting person or the script girl or, you know, anybody who worked on the film that she liked and she was working with, she would just invite them. So there's all levels of the industry were there. And she knew everybody's name. On every film that she worked on, this was kind of like, I think Jean Harlow, as I remembered, who did this too. She knew everybody's name on the set. She knew everybody who was working on it. She would chat with them all. She was totally accessible to everybody on the on the film. That was just how she was. And she hated, hated people who were snooty or thought she really didn't like like Norma Shearer. She really hated Norma Shearer, who was a big, big star at the time. And Norma Shearer was married to a guy named Irving Thalberg, who was probably one of the Four most powerful men in Hollywood. He was a producer. And Norma Shearer was such a snob. And th- and that's why uh, she didn't like her. So she was having all this, these great times. In 1936, she went to a party and Clark Gable was there. This is where the sparks begin to fly. Because basically the rule of the party was that everybody had to wear only white. So it was a white dress party. And so what she did is she arrived in a white ambulance wearing a hospital gown open in the back, Ooh. bandaged, and carried in on a stretcher. <laughs> Everybody kind of freaked out just momentarily because I'm like, oh my God, so she was wearing white. And That's style. That's panache. That's panache. Gable saw her and, and that was it. He was really, really interested in her. And she said she thought he liked the open gown in the back. <laughs> I'm sure who <laughs> wouldn't, right? So a week after, so they they kind of got together then, and they were they were started seeing each other. So a week after the party, she sent Gable an old dilapidated Model T car, painted all over with hearts, and Gable collected vintage cars, so that's a very appropriate cute. gift. Very cute. And so they gave those kind of gag gifts to each other all the time. One time she sent him a dead cat, and he sent her back a stuffed goat. <laughs> So, and, and uh, boy, she ragged on him. She did not let up on him, I'll tell you. But I guess, you know, he, he liked the spirit, you know. Just to go back to her uh, egalitarianness and how much she hated Norma Shearer, just a specific re- another specific reason that she didn't like Norma Shearer, it just kind of like exemplifies the whole thing. So in 1936, there was a, a charity ball for the relief fund. And this was not the, the other party where she came in, in the ambulance. But at this point, party everyone was supposed to wear white okay it was a charity function just another one so instead of that norma shearer because she was so whoopty she wore a red dress wow carol lombard said who the fuck does she think she is the house madam because charity really really mattered to carol lombard it was really important to her and she indulged in charity all her life and not telling anybody you know because uh, it's just what she, that's just who she was 
And the thing was, is like Carol Lombard, she went to an all-white party and she wore all white. She followed the rules, but she she put a twist on it. She made it fun. She made it special. Norma Shearer just was like, fuck you. I can wear whatever I want. Right. You know, and I'm going to be special and I'm going to stand out because I'm not going to wear what everybody else is wearing, you know. So that really galled Carol Lombard. And in fact, not only her, but it said that, um, do you remember when we watched the movie Jezebel with Betty Davis? Mm-hmm. And there was that all-white ball, and she chooses to wear the red dress. Right. And everybody eschews her, and they won't dance in the same floor with her, and she's shamed. Well, apparently, the scriptwriter based that on this incident with Norma Shearer. Oh, wow. That's what, that, what I've read. Like for Carol, Cherry and, and caring about other people is very important. So there was a studio gaffer named Pat Drew who lost a leg in a flying accident. And because he didn't have a leg, he couldn't get a job, you know. She required in all her pictures that he have a job. And if he didn't, she would walk off the set if he wasn't there. And then uh, there was another case where there was a, a, a female tennis player named Alice Marble who was, you know, uh, up and coming. And this is, and at this time, this like she was in amateur status. So, you know, she was like Olympian kind of level. And so basically, she got TB and was put in a sanitarium. And she couldn't play tennis. And of course, she was depressed. And she gained all kinds of weight and got terrible acne. And just, you know, uh, just was a mess. And she pretty much figured, well, her life was over. Her career was over. And Carol Lombard, because she loved tennis, she wrote her a note. Didn't know her, but she heard about it. She wrote her a note and, and encouraged her to fight. And she went and she paid for Alice Marble's doctors and found out that she'd been misdiagnosed. Oh, wow. And she pursued this like her mother did for her. She went and she got a dermatologist and paid for a dermatologist to give her treatments for acne and got her dietary nutritional support. And then she get, got her a course uh, because Alice Marble was interested in clothing and and, and history. She got, she paid for a course at the university uh, for her to learn about costume design and and also to help her learn how to dress and look better and everything. And then she sponsored her for her all her tournament play and got her back into the tournament and on the circuit. And she just turned her, turned it all around. Wow. And then when uh, Alice Marvel tried to thank her, she was like, ah, oh, shit, forget about it. <laughs> Lucille Ball was a protege of hers. Hmm. So she would see other young women trying to come up and she would support them and encourage them and so forth. And so, you know, and so what happened is that what I heard is that Lucille Ball, when she was super famous, she would like find young men and women who were trying to come up in the um, industry and she would invite them over to her home and she would show them episodes of her show and movies and talk about it and they would talk about it and kind of go over it and she'd explain things to them and like really encourage and, and teach them. You know, that's just the kind of thing where you just gotta, you gotta love. Yeah, what a homie. I had no idea. It's yeah. Like, is that amazing? Yeah. Maybe she's a better actress than I thought she was. Yeah, yeah, I know. When you watch, you go, well, you just love her, right? You yeah. just got to love her. And just going back to the thing about the red dress, um, not only did that show up in Jezebel in 1938, two years later, but in 1992, Robert Altman did a movie called The Player, which you haven't seen. Have you seen that? It's, it's a great film. We've got to put that on our list to see. It's a really great film. I highly recommend it. 1992 stars Tim Robbins and Greta Skaki. And anyway, Cher is in it. It's got it's like all about the industry. So there's all kinds of famous people. So Cher is in it, and there's a party where everyone wears black, and she's the only one wearing red. So it's another reference to mm-hmm. that, you know, to well at least to Jezebel. And, and then in 1936, she 
legally changed her name from Jane Peters Powell, because of course she got Powell's name when she married, to Carol Lombard. So it became her legal name, because she liked it or not. During this time, as I said, she had met Gable and they were presents back and forth. And, they were ha- and so they were having a relationship and obviously they were having sex and they were staying in each other's houses. And um, it's just really interesting because her, her relationship and friendship, well, her friendship with Fieldsy didn't sour or go cold, but it just became maybe a little more distant because Fieldsy was not big on Clark Gable for, she just thought that he was too high maintenance for Carol because Carol was really fun and free and accepting. And also she could be easily influenced. And then Gable was really kind of high strung. He was needy, he was demanding. And Fieldsy just didn't really like him for, for Carol. He, he wasn't totally bad. He didn't abuse her that I know of. And he did help her get rid of the, the spongers because uh, she had this whole circle, this kind of entourage of people who was, were just sponging on her because she was so nice and she just wanted to help everybody. So she would just always be giving money and, and support and everything to everybody. And it was kind of draining on her because they were always like around her house. and She was always feeding them and always having parties. And it was, she was getting to the age where it's just getting to be a little too much with her work schedule. And so he kind of helped her clear that out and create space around her and get her to cut back on partying and rest a little more. And um, he also got her to kind of simplify the way she dressed, just live, you know, just be a little bit more simple. In fact, she um, she sold $50,000 of star sapphires because she wasn't gonna wear them anymore. Wow. I know, I know, it's kind of interesting. And he was a big sportsman in terms of hunting and fishing and um, and, so that really kind of fit in for her because she had been a tennis player and runner and all this stuff. So she totally took up the hunting and fishing and would go with him. But also because she was into him in a certain way that, you know, it's like sometimes you can click with somebody, but you feel kind of needy around them. And so you're willing to do whatever they want to get you to like them. And so she was starting to get concerned about, you know, frankly. Retaining his interest yeah, and stuff. Yeah, and he, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, and they did have a monogamous relationship, but not for him. Mm. So there was that issue. It wasn't an open relationship with like Powell, which is probably why it ended up not being too fiery. And they did their relationship, even though it's been idealized and really coded over, really, you know, she would get really angry and be really hurt and upset because he, he would just keep doing it. He would just keep cheating on her. But, you know, that's what he, that's what he was. That's what he did. So... And she chose him, so I guess, but I feel sorry for her uh, because she was not cheating on him. So she was kind of like trying to always like hang on a little bit, um, which will bring us to some tragedy later. But they also got into horses and they bought the ranch. And in our Barbara Stanwyck episode, <laughs> uh, we talk a lot about how they were very good friends with Barbara Stanwyck and her husband, Robert Taylor, and they had nearby ranches and they would ride horses and they had horses that they would race and, and train and stuff like that. So they were... They were doing that as well. Um, <coughs> and on her side, she did get him to loosen up the purse strings because he was tight. Well, he did come from poverty, but he was very tight-fisted with money and, and pretty stingy. And like, for example, he never gave rap party presents. And she thought she just felt that it was incumbent on you as the star to be giving presents to everybody at the end of the party. And that's just what you're supposed to do. So she hired herself and she put herself in charge of buying the gifts, his rap party gifts, and then she billed him for her time. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. 
the other thing that she uh, teased him about, I said earlier that he was second only to Rin Tin Tin, but then later on, he was second at the box office to Shirley Temple. Ha. <laughs> she didn't let him forget about that either. <laughs> Always beaten out by the kids and the dogs. Yeah. So basically, she did various films, and she did um, a film called Swing High, Swing Low with uh, Dorothy L'Amour. Dorothy L'Amour was known for the road movies later with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope with wearing a sarong and everything. She's a very beautiful woman, and uh, this was only her second movie, and she was like really, really nervous, and she kept blowing her lines and blowing her lines. So Carol Lombard started blowing her lines on purpose so that Dorothy L'Amour would feel better, and, and also so she wouldn't get blamed by the director so much, you know, like... She, like she was the only one doing anything wrong. I'm just giving anecdotes right now as we go along. Then we'll get to more uh, more stuff about her personal life. But then uh, there's another really funny story where she's doing a film. Uh, I think it was called True, True Confessions was the film she was doing. And uh, they would have tours that would come through while, you know, uh, filming was going on for the studio tours. And so this particular group was especially noisy and they were coming through and she she lost her temper and she let out like language so blue and just you know and you, of course and there it's tourists there that the assistant director runs up to her and he shouts please miss lombard please there are ladies present <laughs> <laughs> and then as i mentioned before um it was during this time in 37 that uh, Jean Harlow died. So that was another incident that took place. And then finally in 1938, she was really getting very serious about Clark Gable. And she now is 30 years old. She's starting to think about, you know, wanting to have children. So, and of course at that time they didn't have the kind of flexibility for women that they have now, which is probably why a lot of female stars adopted children and didn't have any. Because they wanted kids, but they couldn't be out that long. Not every, not all of them, but like Joan Crawford. Anyway, so in 1938, she decided she was going to take a year off. So one, to be available to Gable, to work around his schedule, to be there for him, to be watching out on him. And also because she had a really terrible movie, Fools for Scandal. It was just a bomb. Here is a quote from a review. The last desiccated shreds of comedy have been plucked from the bones of the Lacava masterpiece, and an east wind blows dismally through its skeleton. Oof. <laughs> Ouch. It was really, really terrible. So she kind of kind of withdrew a little bit there, and also um, she decided that um, she would only take films that worked around Gable's schedule. So if he was filming, she'd be filming. But if he was off, she was going to be off. So she was trying, not that he was trying to do any of that, but, no, you know, she was expected to. But um, but she did mount a campaign. Well, I shouldn't say but. And she mounted a campaign to get the Scarlett O'Hara role in Gone with the Wind. Mm. Because everyone knew Gable was going to be the only one. I mean, some other people were considered, but they were too old. I mean, a lot of them or too young. or what. Gable was, he was it. There's no, not going to be anybody else, even though he wasn't Southern. But there was a huge nationwide sweep for Scarlett O'Hara. And a lot of it had to do with, of course, getting publicity. Right. But she really wanted it, obviously. She wanted the role just because. I don't think she would have been any good in it at all, frankly. No. Also because Clark Gable was going to be it. Duh. David Oselznick, uh, who was the producer for the film, he was reluctant because he didn't want the moral backlash. Because now we've got the Hayes Code in place. Right. Of putting together in a love movie two people 
were essentially living together outside wedlock, and Clark Gable was still married to his second wife. Oh, he was? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, just on that alone, yeah. he, he did not want to go there. And plus, he really disliked Clark Gable a lot. And it was mutual. They did not like each other at all. So he didn't want him to have the leverage of having his lover be his co-star because, of course, she's going to align with him. So that all sounds pretty reasonable. So it's pretty me, political, yeah. yeah. It's pretty political. Yeah, I'm not against him. Um, and he was also worried that if they broke up, then the movie would be screwed. Yeah. You know, so. Uh, so he had, a lot, he had a lot of good reasons for it. But um, he did, but despite the fact that he hated Gable, he knew that the public outcry for him to be Brett uh, Butler was, it, it, you couldn't stand up against it, so he had to get him. But he had to get him on loan from MGM because he didn't have Gable under contract. Um, and he knew it was, ob- it was ultimately going to cost him a lot of money because Louis B. Mayer, who was his father-in-law and head of MGM, uh-huh. only agreed if he could have profit sharing because they knew it was going to be a hit. Yeah. And boy, did that pay off. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And so um, so while he was trying to get um, Gable, uh, and, and Mayer was playing hardball with him, he then tried to get Gary Cooper instead. Did you mention Gary Cooper's Rip Butler? That, no. I just really can't see that at all. Goofy. So what, uh, apparently what Lumbar did is she, she called up Gary Cooper, and she tried to get him... To like tentatively accept the role today, oh, yeah, I think I might do it, and then, and then, then she could get cast because it wouldn't be Gable, right? And then he could back out. Ah, uh. <laughs> that was her little little plan to stage a little coup. It's interesting, but he he wouldn't do it. And Cooper said that Gone with the Wind is going to be the biggest flop in Hollywood history. I'm just glad it's Clark Gable who's falling flat on his face and not Gary Cooper. He was wrong about that. He sure was wrong. So, uh, ultimately, um, uh, in 1939, the pressure around their arrangement uh, was getting pretty heavy. So, Gable got divorced from his wife, and they, in 39, they ended up uh, uh, getting married. They eloped, because they didn't want all the pictures, and the, it would have been a media frenzy. And so, they went to a, a little small town, and uh, Gable... Um, Basically, um, you know, and eloped and got married and uh, on the sly. And like I said, Gable got a divorce. And apparently his, his divorce cost him $300,000, which was really a lot of money. Because, I mean, when you're looking at it, these people are making, I don't know how much he was making. That's still a lot of money. With that lifestyle, too. Yeah. So then he didn't have any money. Because basically he was, you know, even though he was tight, I guess he didn't have a lot of money. I don't quite get it. But so Carol started working again because uh, she had to pay for the ranch house that they had. It was fifty thousand dollars so she had to do a movie so she could so she paid for it. She paid for the decorating. Uh-huh. I don't know, maybe he did have the money and he was hiding it. Yeah. Because he's used to women paying for him. Which she did. She's happy enough. Uh, and apparently um, she um, you know the house was like she did. She did her area. It was like all that kind of glam Hollywood with marble and crystal chandeliers, and and his area was like oak paneled with brown leather chairs, yeah. and humidors, and stuff like that. And and so they had this this farmhouse, and uh, you know they um, 
and she did the redecoration, but they stopped giving extravagant parties and, you know, kind of economized, so to speak. Um, but, and, you know, apparently she didn't mind. It's hard to say, but she, she didn't seem to. Um, in fact, she, um, you know, and she, she, she wanted things to go well. She really, how do you say, she really supported Gable a lot. Kind of almost maybe a little bit in the way that William Powell supported her in certain ways. Because Gable was so just, just fed up with, um, publicity and he hated Selznick and so forth. He was he wasn't gonna go to the Gone with the Wind premiere. Mm. And she's the one who talked him into it. She's the one who got him to go, kind of saved the day. It would have looked pretty bad. Yeah, totally. For him. I, I believe he um uh yeah, anyway, I, I won't say that story because I don't know exactly what the details are. So anyway. So now we're into nineteen forty. Um and Carol has decided that um you know talking about retiring so she can get pregnant because she really wants to have a a kid and um she had done a film called vigil in the night which was a very serious dramatic role and she really thought she should have gotten an oscar for it she didn't this is not one that i've seen somehow i've forgotten to mention my man godfrey so i'm sorry about that because my man godfrey is a great film i guess let me see what what year that was i'm like 36 so i'm sorry i have uh, have to back up here we have to go back to before she's married to Gable, before Gone with the Wind, uh, and before she actually ended up um, uh, having the ranch house. Uh, she, the year she changed her name legally was the year she did probably the second best film she ever did was My Man Godfrey. And that was opposite her ex-husband, William Powell. In fact, William Powell, unbeknownst to her, without telling her, he's the one who demanded that she be cast in the role. Huh. Yeah. So to support her and thought she would do well and everything. So it, it's a it's a really wonderful film. It's again, it's one that William Powell wasn't terribly comfortable with it because it was freewheeling. It's what Carol was used to, where you could improvise and you could cut up and you could, you know, uh, there's just a lot of hijinks on the set. And William Powell was just, he was kind of a serious professional guy. And even though he was really funny and he knew how to deliver a line, he wasn't real comfortable with that, but it worked out okay. The movie was a big hit. So besides later believing she should have gotten the best Oscar for Vigil in the Night, she was actually nominated for Best Actress for My Man Godfrey. Mm. And she she didn't. She lost it. I'm not surprised. That she was nominated or that she lost it? That she lost it. Oh, no. She's not, she's not that great in it. It's a great. It's a really good movie, and, and she works well. She works fine within it. Film it weren't for William Powell, or my favorite, Misha Auer, who plays Carlo, the gigolo. Love him. And, you know, everybody else, in fact, the female I like best in the film is played by Gail Patrick who plays the older, kind of evil sister, but very beautiful and very smart. And FYI, Gail Patrick, C.R. Perry Mason episode, ended up being the producer of the Perry Mason series after she retired from acting. So she kind of never got over not getting that Oscars. Then she expected to get for this other movie because it was a high drama and she didn't get it. So she was pretty upset. All these things I think kind of were 
making her maybe a little more sour because she was beginning to have these ambitions that weren't being met. Because she was uh, so upset about that, Gable offered to give her the one he got from Call of the Wind. Or for it happened one night, I'm sorry. He offered to have it engraved with her name on it. <laughs> and he actually didn't win for Gone with the Wind. Robert Donat got it for Goodbye, Mr. Chips. So basically what he did was then um, he just decided, I mean, he so cared so little. So since she wouldn't take it, he gave it to a friend's kid. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so somebody, they still have it as a very valuable Oscar. I guess you can't really sell them, though. It's illegal or something. Yeah, it's against the. It's against if you, by accepting it, you agree. Although I don't know if they had it way back then, so maybe you could. Uh, basically, you, if you were going to sell it, you had to uh, sell it back to the academy for a dollar, and if they refused it, then you could sell it. I see. Yeah. So then she uh, ends up working with uh, Alfred Hitchcock in a film called Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which I've seen and I thought about it, but Robert Montgomery is in it with her. He's opposite her. I remember just being kind of awful and not funny. The ambition was good in that basically these married couple discover that their marriage actually wasn't legal, that some there's some paperwork thing that was wrong, and or the judge wasn't a judge or whatever, and so they actually aren't married. And so they go, well, maybe we I wouldn't do it again. And so, so that's the whole comedy. And then they end up falling in love again and, and, get, and being married again. So I didn't make you watch it. But in an interview around this time, Alfred Hitchcock said that actors should be treated like cattle. That's come back so many times. I think everybody in the world knows that quote. So one day he came on the set to find three calves with name tags of each of the stars on it. (laughs) And that was Carol Lombard. That was Carol, yeah, exactly. Because Hitchcock loved practical jokes, but he was like really mean. During this film, for example, like one of her jokes was um, she was very pro-FDR, while Robert Montgomery, her co-star, supported Wilkie Collins. And so one day he comes in to find his car completely plastered with re-elect Roosevelt bumper stickers. You know, stuff like that. You couldn't help but liking her. And so by 1941, being married and everything, she's getting ready to have a child with Clark Gable, but she can't seem to conceive. So there's some problem there. So around this time, during her frustrations and everything, Jack Benny who's a very famous comic. I just can't believe anybody doesn't know who Jack Benny is, but I can see that you wouldn't. He, he's somebody I even knew from my childhood. He was a pioneer in radio and television, uh, f- funny guy, and he was very influenced by Barbara Stanwyck's first husband. See our, <laughs> or listen to our <laughs> podcast on Barbara Stanwyck. Frank Fay was the guy's name. Very funny guy, and his, his shtick was that he was really stingy. And he had a black butler named Rochester, and Rochester, it was kind of like a partnership. It was, it was like a, a comedy duo together. So they were very, very popular. There was this film called To Be or Not To Be that uh, they were kind of considering putting him in and he kind of wanted to be in it. And he told her about it, and, but he was nervous, Jack Benny, because he's not really an actor. He's great in the film, by the way, but he, you can tell he's not an actor. He couldn't really do all these other roles. So, um, so she agreed to be in it and uh, to support him. And she actually became an uncredited producer. And she did a lot of production work and everything. And she helped coach Benny. And she helped him with his role and his performance and everything. So she was really supportive. The director was Ernst Lubitsch, who we love Ernst Lubitsch, his films. So many of them. He doesn't go wrong, really. Yeah. We'll have to do a Lubitsch series, don't you think? 
I mean, I, I could watch all his movies again. They're so good. And there was a famous thing. It's called the Lubitsch Touch. He, he was from Eastern Europe, pre-World War One, And so he really had a sort of very sophisticated, light, but louche kind of eye-winking uh, lightness to his comedy. And so there's a lot of sex play and so forth, but it's very light and, and inconsequential in certain ways. And just witty, witty as all get out. Uh, Billy Wilder was very influenced by him. Although I think they had some conflicts too, but who didn't have conflicts with Billy Wilder? I don't know. Anyway, uh, Gable did not like her working with Lubitsch, even though she got along really well with him. And he let her help kind of direct and produce this, this movie because uh, Gable called him the horny hun because he's always after the women. And so, so there's his jealousy coming up. It's like, dude, um, it was still in production on, on the date of Pearl Harbor. So this film got very mixed reactions because To Be or Not To Be is about a troop of players in uh, Poland when uh, the Nazis storm in. And it makes, basically makes fun of Hitler. It makes fun of war. It's, it's very satiric. And because of Pearl Harbor, because there was a war raging, people thought it was in bad taste. That it wasn't patriotic, quote unquote. It wasn't enough. patriotic. And also to make fun of the horrors of war. How can that be funny? Right. I watch it. I think it's it's A+. plus. Yeah. The point's very well taken and it's about how you can't not, you know, yeah. fight fascism and injustice. But Yeah. It's not like, oh, like, ooh-hoo, you know. Yeah. But it is light. Mm-hmm. And so that I think it's the lightness of the Lubitsch touch along with the subject matter. Back, like, how many years ago? Is that 60, 80 years ago? All the 80 years of films we had with the Vietnam and the satires and the war movies and everything, you know, we look at this and go, oh, this is fantastic, because we're able to take the two parts and we're able to synthesize them in our own minds. But at that time, I don't think people had gotten to that point, and they weren't able to do that yet. Yeah. And plus the fact that everyone was up in arms because of the war. So unfortunately, it got mixed reactions, but it was really great. And this, unfortunately, also is her last film. So we're coming to the end. And basically... She was very patriotic, in fact, and she was very pro-FDR and pro his agenda, the kind of quasi-socialist agenda he had going. Uh, Like, for example, when FDR, during the Depression, had put in a income tax, she proudly would go out and announce that she was happy to pay her taxes. And she would say, I'm paying 70% of my income in taxes, and I'm happy to do it. You know, she obviously... The highest end, 70%. But taxes were really very high for that top end. And she was proud to do it. And she did a lot of campaigning on behalf of that. And so she had very much an in with, with FDR. And so the war bond drive was going to start immediately to raise money for the war. And they wanted Clark Gable to do it because, you know, he's such a big star. And Clark Gable, because he's a pissant, wasn't going to do it. Uh-huh. He didn't want to do it. He was, uh, I don't want to do it. And she was like trying to urge him and I'll get him to do it. And she couldn't. He says, well, you go. You do it if you want to. And so she goes, okay, I will go on this bond run and, and raise money. And so she goes off and she travels to do the bond rally. And it was in Indiana, which of course was her home state. So that worked great. And her mother went with her and she was just fantastic. She raised... Um, so much money, like millions of dollars, considering money back in those days, that was really a lot of money. She signed autographs and she visited people and she was just like a, such a star. 
And so basically she was really eager to get home at the end because she was worried that Clark was going to be starting an affair or she'd heard rumors that he was going to be sleeping or had been sleeping with somebody. And so she felt like she needed to get back because she felt insecure. And she really wanted to catch a plane because they were supposed to go back by train. The government had gotten her the ticket and the handlers and everything said, well, it's our job to get you safely on the train. Please don't go flying. No, I want to fly. And she was so insistent. Her mother was afraid of flying. She said, I don't want to fly. I'm afraid of flying. And plus, her mother was big into numerology. And she said, the, the numbers are bad. Uh, every, every omen is bad. I don't want to fly. In fact, and the, and the guy who was the, uh, her guide, he didn't want her to fly because just go on the train. We've already got that set up. She insisted. So they go to the airport and plane is getting full, but they managed their three last seats she managed to wrangle. And people at the airport said they heard them fighting about it and that she really uh, did not want to go. So it ended up that they flipped a coin and Lombard won, so to speak. And they got on the plane and because of the blackout, because they were afraid that there would be, because they're in California, so they're afraid the Japanese are going to uh, attack the mainland, California. Mm. The safety beacons were blacked out, so the, the lights wouldn't be there. So the plane takes off, and there are no safety beacons. And in those days, they didn't have radar on planes. So they were flying in the dark, blind. By the time they saw the mountain in front of them, there wasn't time to ascend, and they flew right into the mountain. Totally destroyed and smashed the entire airplane. And Carol and her mother and the poor guy, the guy that's the guy I feel the worst for, is the guide, yeah. uh, dead. And every other person on the Nobody survived. And so it was a big, big deal. And again, it's got to be because it's Clark Gable. And so Clark Gable's all like in mourning. And I'm sure he felt bad. I'm sure he mourned her. I'm sure he felt really sad. But he was screwing around on her too. You know, it's just, just sort of like, um, and he's the one who wouldn't go. So she went in his place. So he did feel guilty for that. Yeah. Not that he has any guilt for that, but it just became such a myth. They ended up recovering like her hand and pieces oh, of it was oh just horrible there's a memorial to her and and the film which might be another reason it didn't have maybe the greatest reviews to be or not to be was released posthumously so dun, dun, dun. boy that was a downer the way these ones always super end, yeah. sad well let's talk about her movies the, the the movies that we recommend so we've talked about mo- them mostly so to be or not to be is number one 1942 just top class and it makes me sad because it makes me well maybe she's really coming into her own because it isn't screwball right it's comedy and she does those those bits of that kind of breathless delivery that she does it's so focused that i feel like it's it has kind of a fresh modernity to it i mean even if it was a haze code movie it somehow escapes feeling that way well and, and lubish somehow he manages to get around the hate because it's obvious she's having an affair with a younger man and her husband is jealous and that she has these affairs serially right i mean the thing is i guess it's reading between the lines because they indicate that they don't indicate they ever had a night together or you know or anything like that but yeah. you know it's pretty easy to to make that determination and it's just very funny i don't know I don't know if somebody your age would get it, but having Jack Benny walk out on the stage, because there's this really specific Jack Benny walk that he did where he swings his arm, but his torso is absolutely rigid, but his arms swing, and then he walks out, and it really looks like he's holding his sphincter 
super tight up in there. His legs are just kind of moving under him. And it's really, really kind of almost a little mincing walk. It's very funny. And then to have him be Hamlet, he plays Hamlet in this film, to walk out to, the, to, be, to do the famous soliloquy with this walk is a scream. It's so funny. I mean, it comes across how funny it is. It's just funny no matter what. Yeah. yeah. The context, I'm sure, is lost. And then her second film, highly recommended, My Man Godfrey. So we already talked about that. And then... We yeah. didn't really talk about the movie much at all, okay. though. Let's give a taste. So my It's mind, a very class comedy. It is, yeah. It's a class comedy. It's pretty unusual. Um, William Powell plays, at the beginning, he's, uh, I guess, like a tramp. He's living under a bridge in Brooklyn, I believe. And In a, in a community of tramps, where they've built their own community, which he makes a really important point, that they have a society. And this rich, young socialite, Carol Lombard, is playing a game uh, at a party. scavenger hunt. Yeah, and so she brings him in as a, one of her one of her finds, and it goes from there. They end up hiring him as a butler, and he ends up being a superb butler and amazing. and And he has the insight over everything that happens in this wacky, crazy family. The mother has a protege. Well, essentially, he's her toy boy, but she's living in the house with her husband. They've got a daughter who's a very scheming, cold-blooded viper of a woman. Carol Lombard's a complete airhead. She's just so over the top in that yeah. role in terms of being like, oh, what do I do with this? Oh, I love you, Godfrey. I love, you know. Yeah. And the thing that doesn't work for me about it is that she's also the, like, romantic, like, the two of them are the romantic leads. There's not a whole lot of, like, love scenes in the movie or anything, but they end up in a relationship together. And she's just so infantilized, the whole movie, that it doesn't really make sense that in the end he would He would like, want to be with her. Go yeah. for it, yeah. yeah. Or that she even has enough of a mature adult brain to have a relationship, <laughs> yeah, so... Really. You yeah. want, we actually want him to get together with the, the evil, beautiful sister, yeah. who in the end apologizes and ends up being good. Yeah, because she's like... She's a real woman. Yeah. I mean, I don't like that part of it, but I, I do I do really like William Powell in it. Yeah. And I like the family. And I and again, other than the part where she's in love with Godfrey, the rest of it is fine. And it's really very funny. But, but you know, this is the height of the depression, or the depth of the depression, really. So it really does hit hard on the fact that these poor guys are not to blame. They're, they're victims of this economic system uh, that... And Godfrey had been part of the economic system. He had been a really rich guy and in the stock market and so forth. So he ends up deciding that he's going to turn his hand, after working for this family, to creating a business that ends up being basically a worker-owned business where everybody has a stake in the business. They all share in the profits. Yeah, he hires all of the men that all were the living under the bridge, and then they renovate it and turn it into like a nightclub, basically. Right, yeah. exactly. So everybody wins in the end. So they really make the point of the, these useless people doing a scavenger hunt where they're searching for people as props and just don't really have a sense of anything and are drinking and are so feckless to hear somebody who's wealthy but creates wealth, creates value, and helps people. Now, I had originally had... There's a film she does called Nothing Sacred, where she supposedly has radiation poisoning. And then I changed my mind, because I thought, I don't know that I like it that much. It didn't hold together 
fully. It wasn't consistent all the way through. She has an amazing wardrobe and nothing sacred. Right, and she stars with Frederick March. And basically she plays a, a small-town girl who just wants to go to New York, just wants to live a little. And she has an initial uh, diagnosis of radiation poisoning and she's going to die. And then it comes back that, oh, I made a mistake. You're not going to die. But the news hounds have already found out about it. And they've offered her a free trip to New York. So she decides to fake it and take the trip. But then, you know, guilt sets in ultimately. It gets out of hand. The media loves her. And right. And a terrific sensation. A tragic sensation. Yeah, but she's not going to die. Of course, she falls in love with Frederick March. But it's, it's one of her best-known films. It is. It really is. And it is a lot of her falling down and kicking and punching and flinging her arms. And there's kind of a lot of it. So I decided to go with No Man of Her Own. That's number three. Yeah, what yeah. do you think? Do you agree with that? Because we could do Hands Across the Table instead. No, I liked No Man of Her Own better. Yeah. Well, Gable, I mean, as critical as I've been of him in this, because, you know, because, he was a great star. And I do love seeing him on the screen. And I do think he's sexy. Yeah. Even though he had really bad breath, apparently. <laughs> a bit of halitosis. He had very bad halitosis. Apparently, it had to do with his false teeth, because he had a, full, uh, a lot of false teeth. He had a lot of te- tooth problems, apparently. They're people. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but he, I do find him sexy and manly, and I kind of dislike how they will cast him so much as a bit of a brute yeah. to women. They keep the women like that. Well, in your dreams, buddy. But so, so this is what the men thought was the ideal man. So I think he, he even overcame that brutishness because he was sexy to end up being a sex symbol to women. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So he's in it. And he plays strapping guys out there as a city boy, conning people, you know, loving sharking women. Sharking cards, yeah. Yeah, sharking, sharking cards, exactly. He really brings a lot of zing to the screen. Yeah, and they have good rapport, good banter. And she, her character in the movie is good because she just has a lot of agency. She's, a, again, another small-town girl librarian, as you said before, and wants excitement, and she knows she do, what she doesn't want. And then he comes in the picture, and she's like, That's what yeah, I want. Zowie. So she goes for it, and like you know, even though she eventually finds out that he's kind of a crook, she goes with it and helps him and stays loyal to him. But at the same time, in a way that makes him ultimately be a better person. Well, she does for a while, and then she finds that she can't do it. It's not. It's wrong. So she goes back to her hometown and just says, "I'm here when you want me, but you know, you've got to change your ways." And she does. He does. Then he goes to jail for a while too. Right. Well, he's got to pay his dues. Yeah. It's it's good. And she's not too wacky. It's kind of just kind of the right tomber for her. Well, yeah. that's Carol Lombard. Yeah, so I mean... I hope it, it wasn't too depressing. <laughs> you know, that's what always happens when you're actually doing a full-life biography. Because they, they all die in the end, right? Yeah. <laughs> not a ton of movies that we recommend of hers, so that should be pretty easy for you to go out and stream or rent. Uh, right, and, and if you're her. going, I disagree, I don't think she's strident. I think she's great. Well, perfect. Then that that's great because then you'll be able to uh, enjoy more of her movies. All right. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. For this two-part Carol Lombard series. On, on Christmas. See you next time. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.